0: Take your Bible. Let's turn together this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we will finish this chapter out this morning. Just a few final verses here of chapter 4 before we move into 5 next week. James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And if you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Again, James writing, addressing the dispersed churches, and he says here, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a life there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that.'" But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And you can be seated this morning. One of the most popular apps that are available on a phone is productivity apps, and most of the time that has to do with with making lists of things that you need to do, calendaring apps to keep track of of your schedule and all the things that you're supposed to do. In fact, I find it amazing every time you go to, uh, say, Staples or or an office supply store at the end of the year before the new year begins, there is no shortage of personal planners and calendars available of every shape and size. You have ones you can fit in your pocket, one you can put on your desk, some that are laid out in monthly schedules, some that are laid out in daily schedules, some even down to hourly schedules. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of different types of calendars because people have it in their mind. We need to make plans. We need to set the the standard of what we're going to do. And most of us, probably in one place or another, in our phone or on a piece of paper, keep a to-do list. Things that we need to do during the week. Some of you husbands may have a honeydew list at home. Uh, that that's probably needs to be the top priority on your to-do list. But the point is, is that we think about the future, right? We think about the things that we want to do, the things that we need to do, the things that we're obligated to do. And so here James is talking about someone who's making some plans. He's talking about people who are making plans. He's not particularly speaking to one person. He's speaking to an entire group of people. And it seems on the front that perhaps James is maybe cautioning against the idea of planning. But what we're going to understand here in this passage today is that James is not criticizing planning, he's really criticizing the wrong kind of planning. I want you to notice the first thing in this passage here is a charge against boasting. You see, James all through this book has been addressing things there inside of these Christians, helping them how to understand the the Christian life and how they are to live, the challenges they're going to face and how they should face them, how they need to evaluate their, their life and to make sure that they are truly in the faith. But he also cautions and warns them against those dangers that would come. You remember last week we talked about those who were inside of the church community who claimed to be a Christian but yet by their own lifestyle and testimony demonstrated that they were not truly saved. And so James laid out this beautiful picture of the gospel and what it meant to draw near to God in order to be saved. And so now he has come to this point because he wants to address something that he knows is happening inside of the church. Look there at verse 13. He says, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a prophet. Now, this is a direct confrontation here. James switches gears yet again, as he does so many times here in this, in this, um, uh, in this epistle here. He switches directions and he says, come now. It's really go now. It's a direct confrontation. And what he's doing is attempting to speak to those inside the church who were businessmen, traders, uh, uh that would go to foreign lands to make money. And he wants to confront how they're doing their operations. Now, the Jews were very well known for their business savvy, especially during this time of of human existence. They were very well skilled in the trades of going places and trading in in gold and and different metals and in uh, in uh, different crops and furs and things like that and in woods and different things. They would go to all these different places, and in fact has been demonstrated down through history that as different empires were growing and they would establish these cities, they would often get Jewish people to come there as some of the first ones there to try to establish business operations in those cities. So, And they were very well, they did very well at it. They made lots of money in the things that they did. Now, James here is not saying that a man should not make plans. He's not saying that a man should not plan what he's going to do, but He is directing it specifically to those people. Notice what he says. He says, you who would say. And then he lays out what that person might be thinking in their mind or might be saying out loud. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. James here is addressing someone who's confident in several things. Number one, this person that James is speaking to, this group of people that James is speaking to, are confident in their time, right? Because he says, today or tomorrow, we will go. He's confident in that. He doesn't have any uncertainty, doesn't demonstrate any question about that. He says, today or tomorrow, we're going to go this. He's confident in the time that he has available unto himself. But secondly, this person's also confident into his travel because he says, we will go to such and such a city. No question about whether he'll get there, no question if if the journey will be arduous or whether he'll even make it. No, he says, we're going there. He's confident in the length of time that he has on this earth because he says we'll spend a year there. He's confident in his work because he says we'll engage in business, but he's also confident in his reward because he says we're going to make a profit. Now, again, on the front of those things, none of those things are wrong to think about. None of us in this room set out every day without any thought of what we're going to do that day. I'm sure that perhaps even yesterday as you uh, were at your house, you thought about, okay, what do I have to do this week? On Monday, I've got a doctor's appointment. On Tuesday, I've got to go to the bank and and check on some things there. And then on Thursday, I'm going to go to the grocery store. We we think about those things without even really thinking about those things. And we don't really draw into consideration whether we'll be here or not, whether it'll happen or not. We just go ahead and make those plans. (laughs) And James here is calling these men to understand that they are so confident in what they're going to do that they're leaving God out of the equation. Seneca once said how foolish it is for a man to make plans for his life when not even tomorrow is in his control. He also went on to say no man has such rich friends that he can promise himself tomorrow. Tomorrow. James wants them to understand that although in their minds they are entirely confident about what they're going to do, they're leaving God out of the equation. They're leaving God out of their consideration. Again, James is not condemning the idea of doing business, he's not condemning the idea of making plans, he's not condemning even the idea of making a profit. He's merely condemning those who would do these things without the consideration of God's will for their life. He goes on to verse 14, still with this charge against boasting. He says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The writer of Proverbs told us the same thing. In Proverbs chapter 27, he says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 16:1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. James is pointing out that they could lay out all the plans that they want. They could have everything set exactly how they wanted to go. They could have bought the tickets, reserved the hotel room, set up all the stuff that they needed to operate business and be so confident that they're going to go there, stay a year there, make a great profit and come back. And James says, but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know that you're going to live to see the dawning of the next day. He says, you do not know what your life is going to be like. And remember that passage that we read just a moment ago about the rich man. That Jesus talked about. He was productive, making money. He says, well, what will I do to store all my crops? I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll have all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods for many years. Take up your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, is there anything wrong with succeeding at being a farmer? Is there anything wrong with having a large crop and a large harvest? No. Is anything wrong with tearing down your barns and building larger barns because you have more need to have more room to store it? No. But what was the problem with this man? The problem with this rich man was he began to have confidence in himself instead of trusting in the Lord. And he says, now that I've done all of this, I can just lay back and relax, eat, drink, and be merry because I have taken care of everything. And what did Jesus say? He says, God told him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? All the riches that this man had established for himself, all that he thought was going to carry him for a rich, long, leisurely life, was gone for him, for it was. It was left behind for someone else to take up and to manage. He says, you do not know what your life will be like. You are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. James points to the uncertainty and the futility of life. Here these men were making plans for weeks, months, years into the future with no consideration of what God desired and even no guarantee that they would even be alive tomorrow. John Gill, who's one of my favorite old commentators, said this. He says, no man can secure a day, an hour, a moment, and much less a year of continuance in this life. Nor can he foresee what will befall him today or tomorrow. Therefore, it is great stupidity to determine on this and the other without the leave of God in whom he lives, moves, and has his being, and by whose providence all things are governed and directed. I love that. It's great stupidity to think that you can live this life without consideration of what God desires. The God who everything that we do is governed by, we think that we can somehow supersede it or sidestep it. But James says, our life is a vapor. This has always been one of my go-to passages when when Pastor Wes and I, or when I've been out with someone else on the street, because it does exactly what James intended it to do. It calls into perspective how insignificant our life is in comparison with eternity. Now, some of us in this room may be granted to live a rich, long life well into our 90s. And by the world standard, that's a long life. You see somebody who, who who makes it to 100, and, and oftentimes the news will come out and do an interview with them. It's like, how does it feel to be 100 years old? How does it feel to have lived this long and saw as many changes as you have? And we look at that as like, this is a long life. But James says, your life is a vapor. You walk outside in the morning when it's a little cool. And you exhale your breath, and there for a moment, you just see that little bit of steam that's there for just a moment, and it's gone. And that's exactly what James is saying. That's your life. There, gone. In light of eternity, our lives are so insignificant. It's there, and then it's gone. All the plans, James says, that you can put into these things, all the preparations that you can make, he says your life is there and then it's gone. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I love to look at pictures of uh, old architecture, old houses. And it's amazing as I've studied some of those over the years how many times you'll come across these huge palatial mansions. They were built sometimes in the 1800s, sometimes throughout the 20th century, and some even not that long ago. These huge mansions that were built by somebody who had, who, had, who had established on this earth riches for themselves, and they put all of this. It's like, this is going to be the place that I'm going to live for the rest of my life, and they build it, and then they die. And there it stands, a legacy of the shortness of life, a legacy of, of, of how tiny our life is in light of eternity, a a legacy of what it means to not consider God's purposes and wills and plans in our life. This statement is one that shakes a person to their senses, that our life is so tiny in light of eternity. Job would say this, he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope remember that my life is but breath. Psalm 102.11, my days are like the lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. James's purpose here is not to leave them in sorrow, but really to offer a godly perspective of our lives, a perspective that eliminates boasting about all the things that we will accomplish again, because James wasn't criticizing the fact that they were going to go make money, wasn't criticizing the fact that they were traveling anywhere. He was criticizing the fact that they had done all this, planned all this, without any thought of, is this what God desires for me to do? Is this what God wants me to be doing? Is this is God's will for my life? It was said that someone came up to George Whitfield, that great evangelist of the Uh, 19th century, and asked him, they said, Mr. Whitfield, if you were to know the day of your death, what would you do? You know, what what would you go do? And they said that he pulled out his calendar in his pocket and pointed to all the preaching engagements and the things that he had going on, and he said, I would be doing this. he said, I'm not going to do anything different than what I know God has called me to do. I'm not going to change my plans just because I know He's like, I want to be living my life in such a way that what I'm doing is exactly what I want to be doing should I die. So we should plan. I don't want you to walk away this morning and go home and throw away your calendar. No, you should plan. We should think about what God has called us to do. We should think about what we need to do and then make plans for those things, but we should also be prepared to understand that everything that we plan, everything that we hope for may not go the way that we think that it will. And there's an element of dependency upon God that James is calling for us to do here. Now jump down with me to verse 16. We're gonna come back to verse 15 in just a moment. Let's jump down to verse 16. Because he's continuing in this line here. He says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, what is James saying here? He's saying, You have made these plans, and you're boasting in this arrogance. To live our lives in such a way, such a way that does not take God into consideration of our plans or our purposes, is not just a bad habit, James says he says it's evil. The word boasting that he uses there is a word that was oftentimes used as the characteristic of a wandering quack. It was the guy who would show up in a town and offer cures for various diseases and boast of things that he could not do. And people looked at him and said, that guy's just off of his rocker. That's the word of the arrogance here. It's, 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 it's vainful boasting about the things that we think we're going to do when we have no guarantee that we can do them. One commentator said it this way, self-centered bragging must be replaced by God-honoring trust. The cure for boasting is belief. Those to whom James is writing here were boasting of all the things that they were going to do and accomplish without any consideration of God's providence under which everything that we know operates. When we think about our lives and we think about the things that we do, we understand that God rules and reigns. But oftentimes we can, even as believers, be tempted to make our plans and to guide and direct our lives without any consideration of what it is that God desires for us to do. We think we're going to accomplish it all. And James says to do this is to boast in arrogance, to boast in foolishness. And he says all such boasting is evil. Why is it evil? Well, because to try to live our lives without this submission to God and this dependence upon Him is really to try to subvert God out of our lives. We, we set ourselves up almost as being superior to God. Not that we would say it in such a way, but that's how, we are, that's how we're living it out, that we're superior to God, that we don't need His consideration. We don't need His guidance. We don't need to trust in Him because we can handle it on our own. I think in the time in which we live, that we're maybe a little more tempted to this mindset because of all the things that we have available to us. Our lives, in in many ways, are far easier than they were for our great-great-grandparents. We decided this year, at home, we, we do a garden every year, and we decided to try something new this year that we had seen, and uh, it's what they call a, a, a really a no-till garden. It's where you take a thing called a broad fork, and instead of using a tiller, you use this, you know, this hand tool, and you just turn all the dirt over by itself. Let me tell you, a tiller is a thousand times easier. But it made me consider, right, how much easier our lives are compared to decades ago. Used to if you wanted to farm you either did it by hand you might have a mule or a horse that could do it for you but you didn't have tractors. If you cut your grass you did it with a with a with a hand a push mower that didn't have an engine on it. If you wanted to go to town you either had to walk or saddle up the horse and ride into town. Now we get in the car we don't even think about it. Every time you come into town to buy groceries you don't think about the fact that if it hadn't been for the invention of the car you'd have to walk to town to get your groceries. It's easier. And so because things are so easy, we sometimes tend to forget that all of these things, all these blessings that we have, God has given to us and he's put them at our disposal to use for the good of his kingdom. But oftentimes we just think that they're just here because they're here and we just can do whatever we want to with them. And we don't bring God into consideration of our plans. And it kept striking me every time that I read this verse this week that all such boasting is evil. Because I think oftentimes there's these subtle things that we can do as Christians that we don't think about how severe they are in the light of how God sees it. Now, I mean, there are obvious black and white sins that we would say, oh, well, as Christians, we shouldn't do that, right? We shouldn't gossip, we shouldn't slander, shouldn't say hurtful things to one another, shouldn't murder, shouldn't steal. I mean, those are very clear in black and white. But what about your calendar? Have you ever thought about how you submit your calendar and your plans to God? And, and do we do that? Do we do that in the way that we should? When you sit down and make your plans for the week, do you think about, okay, how do I submit this calendar to the Lord? Well, lucky for us, James gives us the answer. Look at verse 15. He says, instead... Instead of making boastful plans, instead of planning all these things in your arrogance, instead of doing it in such a way without consideration of God, what does he say? He says, instead, you ought to say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I love the way that he phrases that here. Because he's just been talking to these men who are going to go trade and make all these plans. And he's already told them about how frail their life is. It's that it's a vapor. And he doesn't say, if the Lord wills, then we can do the things that we've planned. No, he says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Right? It's up to the Lord whether you live or whether you die. And he says, it's up to the Lord. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live. And then if the Lord blesses us in allowing us to live, then also we can do this or that. To avoid such ungodly boasting, one must obtain a godly perspective of their life, a perspective that includes God in every area. That's our plans, our hopes, our dreams, everything. It is a dependence and an acknowledgement of God. John Gill said it this way. He said, it's a real acknowledgement of God's providence and the dependence of all of our affairs upon Him which He requires. Now, Paul exhibited this in his writings. Acts chapter 18, he says, But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 16, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Now, James here is not suggesting the use of this phrase as some type of mantra or charm at the end of every sentence that we make. Your wife asks you, honey, what are you doing this week? Well, I'm gonna to go to the doctor tomorrow if the Lord wills. What are you doing after that? Well, then I'm gonna to go to the grocery store if the Lord wills. And, and then I'm gonna go a uh, walk around the lake if the Lord wills. That's not what James is saying. He's saying that it should establish a mindset that in turn affects every part of our life. He's not saying that we just say if the Lord wills after everything we plan to do, but he's saying this is the mindset that we should have, that every plan that we make, whether it's to go to the doctor, to the grocery store, to go across the world, that in our minds we understand I plan to do these things, but all of this is dependence upon if this is God's will for my life or not. It's interesting that many commentators pointed out that James is really somewhat being ironic in this statement. Because this statement, if the Lord wills, was a statement that was often used in that culture by both Christians and non-Christians alike. It was a phrase that had been picked up over the years, and and oftentimes, as is in culture, people will just use a phrase without even thinking about it. You know, they'll say, you know, God willing. Same thing if you were in a a large room and somebody sneezes, what happens? Somebody says, God bless. Does anybody know why you say God bless after somebody sneezes? No, you just do it because that's how it's always been done. And so what James is saying here to these people, he's saying if even the pagans, the non-believers, use this phrase, if God wills, he's like, how much more should you who actually understand what it means and who actually believe in God's purposes and plans, how much more should you have this mindset about the things that you desire to do? James is saying we need to develop this thought that anything that we do is dependent upon the will and the purposes of God. Brothers and sisters, we can't get past this. This this is such an important thing for us as believers to understand is that our lives are entirely guided and directed by the Lord's purposes. Nothing happens to us in this life outside of God's purposes and plans. And what an encouragement that is. We were just talking about that in our Sunday school class this morning, that there are there are some Christians who believe that right now on this earth that there's a battle between Satan and Jesus over the lives of Christians, that even after you're a Christian, that sometimes Satan can just do whatever he wants to do. And you'll hear them say this because something bad will happen and be like, boy, Satan was really after me today. He's like, you know, boy, Satan did this. And again, I'm not saying that when bad things happen that Satan does not have a part and parcel in that sometimes. He does, no doubt about it. But the beautiful thing that the Scripture teaches us is that even when Satan does something to us to cause us to to stumble or to, or to cause something to happen around us that causes us grief or sorrow, he can only do that under the divine permission and the authority of God. He can't operate outside of God's control. He can't operate outside of God's permission. And what has the Scripture told us? That God will never give us something that he will not carry us through. If we depend upon him, God will carry us through everything that this life can bring to us. So Job is saying, instead, say, if the Lord wills, develop this mindset about you to understand that you can lay out all the perfect plans, but you need to submit them to the authority and the will of God. We don't want to be caught in a type of arrogant Christian living, in boastful Christian living. So we talked about the charge against boasting. We've talked about that call to dependence there in verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. Now, finally, I want you to look at this last verse. It's a caution against sin. He says there in verse 17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James here sums up the teaching of this passage here in chapter 4, but really most commentators believe he's really summing up the teaching of the entire epistle thus far because he uses that word therefore. And as I've heard so many preachers say before, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. So he says, I've said all of this. I've laid all of this out to you in this letter. And, and when we have to remember, again, remember, when, when when the churches would have received this letter, it was not numbered by chapters. It was not numbered by verses. It was just a letter. Oftentimes that can cause us a little bit of confusion as we're reading this and think, well, well, why would he do that here and not earlier at a different point? Because remember, all this was just written out in paragraph form. James is just writing a letter to them. And he comes to this point where now he feels like, okay, I need to sum everything up. I need to kind of bring this all to a crescendo here so that they understand what it is and what my purpose is behind all of this. So he says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, how do they know the right thing to do? Right, because James is basically saying, okay, I'm speaking to you, the one who knows the right thing to do. How does one learn the right thing to do? Well, they have to be taught the right thing to do. Those of you who are parents in the room, you know that if you were just to let your child run wild, they would get themselves in a lot of trouble. There are certain things that you, you could let your child learn by example, but it's more convenient for them and more gracious to them to just teach them the right thing to do and the wrong things that they should not do. But James here is specifically speaking of the right things to do. He's, he's talking about the difference here. Now, we know that there are wrong things that we shouldn't do, but now James here is talking about there are certain things that as believers that are right things, that are good things, that are holy things, that we should be doing. So how do they learn these? James has taught them. More importantly, we could say that the Holy Spirit has taught them through James. They can't plead ignorance anymore. They know what they are to do because James has taught them here. And James says, if you know the right thing to do, and if you do not do it, then it is sin. Now, when we talk about sin, we talk about two types of sin. We talk about sin of commission. That's when we do something that we should not do. Far less talked about is the sin of omission. That is when we should do something and we do not do it. Matthew Henry said, it is an aggravated sin, talking about this type of sin, this sin of omission here. He says it's an aggravated sin. It is a sinning with a witness. And it is to have the worst witness against a man that can be when he sins against his own consciousness. When we know the right thing to do, and yet we make a decision not to do it, James says that it is sin. Now, we could think very briefly of of some things like that. Oftentimes when I think of the sin of omission, I've, I've heard people talk about this before, that maybe you're out somewhere and uh, you were standing in line at the grocery store and, and you felt like the Lord was prompting you to speak to that person in front of you and, and you're like, well, I just don't have the time, I, I don't know the right thing to say, and so you don't do it, right? And that, that's a sin of omission. You knew the right thing to do and you didn't do it. But it's much greater than that. It's much broader than that. Because James here has been talking about so many different things about Really, if we were to go back to the earlier chapters, remember that faith without works is dead? And and talking about the different characteristics of the Christian life, James, says, listen, now that you know what the Christian life is supposed to look like, now that you know how you're supposed to live, now that you know the expectations that God has given to us as believers, he says, "You, you can't plead the fifth anymore. You can't plead ignorance. He says, now, now, if you don't do those things, it is sin for you. And brothers and sisters, I don't think there's any of us in this room that want to be found in sin against the Lord. And this is why Matthew Henry said that it's such an aggravated sin because it is a sin with a witness. We know the right thing to do, and our conscience bears witness against us that we should do the right thing when we choose to not do the right thing. James's goal here in this entire book so far, this letter so far, has been to lead these believers to spiritual maturity. He's not trying to condemn them. He's not trying to browbeat them. He's really trying to lift them up. You know, in our culture, anytime someone is critical of another person, they view that as demeaning or hurtful, right? You're just trying to tear me down. But the scripture is very clear that that a a loving wound from a brother is a good thing for us, that, that when we help somebody, even if it's difficult in the moment, that it's good for us. And James here has been very, very hard and critical in moments towards these believers. But he's doing it not because he wants to push them down and elevate himself. He's doing it because he wants to see them grow in spiritual maturity. But he says, now that you know what to do, now you must do it. Now you must do it. It applies very poignantly to everything that James has said, but let's tie it now, because we're here this morning, back in to our text today. James says, build a dependence in your life to avoid boasting. Turn away from... Arrogant boasting, turn away from sinful boasting and turn to a dependence upon the trust of the will of God and what God wants in your life. James says, now you know the right thing to do. Don't boast, but depend upon the Lord. Don't be arrogant, but be submissive to his will. And he says, and now that you know what the right thing to do is, now do it. Because otherwise you're in sin. That's pretty direct, isn't it? Pretty clear. But I think oftentimes, brothers and sisters, we can be tempted to read those passages and think, "Well, that's talking about somebody else. Right? It's talking about another person. It's talking about it was great for these believers here in the first century, but but I think I'm okay. I think I'm I'm past this. But every single one of us has this tendency." to be boastful and arrogant in the decisions that we make without that dependent trust upon the Lord. Our life is a vapor. As I look around this room this morning, I see people of all ages, from tiny babies all the way up to seniors. And what does that mean? It really doesn't mean anything. Right, because next week could come and the youngest person in the room could be gone, and the oldest person in the room still be here. Because our life is a vapor that's here and then gone. Now we could we, we could break here and talk about what that means in, in light of eternity, but I want to stick with what James is saying here this morning. Is that we want to live our lives, however brief they may be in light of eternity, we want to live our lives in this dependent submission upon God. But why? Because we don't want to come to the end of our life like that rich man did, and by earthly standards have amassed great fortunes, great houses, great barns, and then be left with nothing. Because on the flip side of that, if we have this dependent trust on God, we can be just like George Whitfield was. That he comes to the end of his life and says, Well, Mr. Whitfield, what do you want to be doing when you die? Well, I want to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, and it wasn't just it wasn't just a saying for Whitfield, because if you know Whitfield 's life, you'll understand that he had been preaching all over New England and was worn out because he had been preaching for days on end, and the man was just tired. And he got back to the place he was staying that night, and the, and the neighborhood found out that he was there. And so a large crowd gathered around the house, and they begged him. They pleaded. said, Mr. Whitfield, will you please come out and preach to us just one more time? And so Whitfield came out on the stairs and preached one more time, went upstairs, laid down in his bed, and never got up again. Why? He didn't plan on doing it that night. He planned on going home and going to bed because he was tired. But he had lived his life in complete submission to the dependence upon God. That when the moment called, he beckoned. And may we all live our lives in such a way. Father, we thank you today. Lord, help us. Lord, there are so many things that beckon for our time. So many things that beckon for us to give our allegiances to, to give our time to, to give our resources to. But Lord, help us to be keenly aware of what your will and purpose is for our life, that we may listen attentively to you and that, Lord, although we will make plans because we have to to live in this life, that, Lord, we will submit those plans to your will and to your authority that you may guide us and direct us in all things. Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers, would help us to find this complete dependence upon you, this trust in you in all areas of our life. Lord, help us now that we know what to do, to do it. Now that we understand what your plans and purposes are through your word, may we do those things which you've called us to do. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.